Chapter 10 of With the Anzacs in Cairo by Guy Thornton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 In the Military Hospitals. One of a chaplain's chief duties is, of course, to visit the sick and wounded in the hospitals. In order to ensure the systematic visitation that alone can be productive of good, a roster was drawn up, and until the troops left for Gallipoli, two of the chaplains were detailed to visit the New Zealand hospital each day. After the main body of Australian and New Zealand troops had proceeded to Anzac, which, by the way, is not, as some assume, a Turkish or Arabic name, but the initial letters of Australian New Zealand Army Corps. The chaplains who did not accompany them were attached for duty at Malta, Alexandria, Port Said, Cairo, and for a time at Helwan. I was sent to the last place to act as New Zealand resident chaplain, at the Great El Hayat Hotel, which had been converted into an Australian and New Zealand convalescent hospital. Helwan is perhaps the oldest Spain in the world, and for thousands of years has been the resort of rheumatic and gouty patients who have sought to obtain relief by bathing in its naturally hot and medicinal springs. I had many interesting talks with the men, the majority of whom had been wounded during the early days of the fighting at Gallipoli. Visiting the wounded on the great stone piazza of the hospital, I remarked a young man who was apparently not more than 22 years of age. He wore dark spectacles, and the whole of his right cheek was seamed and scarred by livid lines which marked the track two machine-gun bullets. Pale as death and attenuated in form he was, to judge from appearances, the most unlikely of men to win the coveted DCM, which he had earned, so his comrades vowed half a dozen times over by the deeds of splendid heroism. I said to him, I'm sorry to see you have been so badly knocked about, my boy. Thank you, Captain, but I'm no worse off than thousands of my mates, and much better off than thousands of those poor beggars were worse hit than I was. I'm glad to have been able to do my bit. It must make a chap think pretty seriously over there, I said. My word it does. When I went there I had never given a thought to religion. But I hadn't been long on the peninsula before I found myself compelled to think mighty hard. I had always lived a fairly decent life, and with the exception of swearing had very little to reproach myself with. But there, I just felt I needed strength. And so I just gave myself to Christ, and God did enable me to conquer swearing. He took the desire for it away, and only once since the day I decided to be a Christian have I sworn. It happened something like this. We were in action, and at a critical moment, the machine gun jammed. I lost my self-control and swore at one of my mates. And do you know, Captain, I am sometimes inclined to think that the reason I got this wound in my jaw was a punishment for my sin. I was real sorry, though, the very moment after I swore. Do you think that it was a punishment? I was deeply touched and replied, He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. No, my boy, I scarcely think so. Well, sir, I'm glad you don't think so. Personally, I don't regret it very much. It was worth going over to the peninsula and being wounded to become a Christian. I am a better and happier fellow now than I was before. It's grand to have your conscience at rest. It's worth anything. Before I left him, 
he said very quietly, I am glad, too, to be able to take back with me the DCM. My people will be so pleased. There are many who, as they read the casualty lists, are stricken to the heart to see recorded therein as killed in action some loved relative or friend who, as far was known, had never definitely accepted Christ as his Savior, and consequently Christian friends have been disposed to doubt whether God had heard and answered their prayers. To such, God's message comes, Be not faithless, but believing. God, being what he is, must, for his own honor's sake, hear and answer every believing prayer. I will now give in the words of the narrators several instances of men who, had they been killed, would naturally have been supposed to have died impenitent. However, before doing so, I will repeat the statement of a man who made no profession of Christianity. In one of the English papers, a clergyman of high standing was reported to have said that those men who gave their lives for the country would receive mercy and salvation from God, since, Greater love hath no man than he giveth his life for his friends. In the tent, this subject was being discussed, and the strong common sense of the majority of disputants was voiced and evidenced by one of them finally saying, as reported to me by a soldier who was present, I don't hold myself up to be a plaster saint. Everybody smiled. He certainly did not look like one. And if those blooming parsons think any sane chap would swallow that lie, they are bigger fools than I took them for, and that's saying a lot. Here's Jay here, mentioning one of his mates. We all know that the sort of bloke he is, and why he had to get out of New Zealand. He had made, his place of residence, too damned hot to hold him. Here I am. I swear like blazes. There is not a blamed thing that the Bible is up against that I don't do. And I say that we, if we get a bullet through our heads or hearts, go straight to heaven, is more than I can swallow. I am fed up with the wowsers, slang for ministers or Christians, who say one thing and say to try to please us when the book they say they try to follow just says the opposite. The book says, I don't set up to know much about it, but I remember this much, He that believeth not shall be damned. There's no blessed shilly-shallying there. It's straight to the point. Do Jay and me believe? Of course we don't, or we couldn't live like we are living. If wowsers like that bloke lived among men and knew what they were really, they wouldn't talk such blooming rot. An Australian who took part in the now historic landing at Gallipoli told me the following. As we climbed up the hill, it seemed as if I was going to certain death. My mate on my left had his head blown clean off his shoulders. Two others on my left fell, one dead, the other severely wounded. I knew, and had known for years, that I should be a Christian. My parents are real Christians, Presbyterians. I felt I must pray, and ask God to save me. I did so. I asked God to take me, and I promised there and then that I would serve him. Then something whispered to me through all the noise. It's a cowardly thing to ask God to save you when you are only afraid of being killed. And for a moment I thought it was. Then came this thought into my mind. It's never too late to do right. And so I prayed again, and my word, it fairly surprised me how God answered it so quickly. And I knew he had answered it, for I felt at perfect rest, and I didn't care much whether I was killed or not, for I knew I was at last right with God. 
Another soldier from South Australia said, in almost the same words, The fire was terrible. How any of us got through to life was a miracle. I was with a bunch of men climbing the cliff, and I never expected to get to the top alive. My people are Christians. I knew that they were praying for me, and that sort of comforted me for a bit. But I knew enough to know that if I was to be saved, I should have to pray for myself. We sheltered in a hollow for a few minutes, and the bullets were whizzing just over our heads. There I gave myself right up to Christ, told him what a rather I had been, and promised him that if he would save me, I would do anything I could for him. And he did. Had these two men been killed, who would have thought that they had, in the heat of the conflict, made the great decision? Yet they had done so, and their afterlife showed that the decision had been real. Another man, a Christian, told me his experience in the following words. As the boats drew nearer and nearer the shore, I was afraid that I should be afraid, and by my cowardice bring disgrace upon the name of Christ, for all my mates knew me to be a professing Christian. In maneuvers I knew that I was apt to get excited and very nervous, and so I asked God to give me courage and peace so that I might not dishonor my Savior or seem to be flurried. Immediately it seemed as if the words of the hymn were spoken to me, and I used them as an addition to my prayer. Hold thou my hand, I am so weak and feeble, I dare not take a step without thine aid. And then a strange, indescribable peace possessed me, my fears vanished, and I was much cooler and more collected than in any sham fight. All through that long and terrible charge, I felt as if God's hand indeed held me. We flung ourselves down and dug ourselves in under heavy fire. We had advanced too far, and when night fell, the Turks almost surrounded us, firing continuously from three sides of our hastily dug trench. Man after man fell. We had determined to die rather than surrender, so it seemed as if death was certain. Still, I had perfect peace. Then the O.C. asked me to crawl out under fire to take lookout duty. I got there safely and never in all my Christian life had such a glorious experience of God's presence, feeling absolutely assured that all was right whether I lived or died. At last a stray bullet hit me in the head, but I still retained the sense of the Father's presence and felt absolutely assured that all was right whether I lived or died. I was wounded at night and was not discovered until the next morning. Through it all, I had peace. A wounded Highlander, a private, who before he enlisted had been a schoolmaster, told me of two men in his regiment who were great chumps. One was a decided Christian, the other was not. The Highlanders were preparing to charge, and a feeling of deadly nausea crept over the non-Christian. He looked at his Christian friend and saw that he, at any rate, possessed a peace and power to which he personally was a stranger. In his fear and desire to be brave, there was wrung from him a cry to God for salvation. The answer came, and he said he seemed to hear a voice saying, Fear not, for I am with thee. His fear vanished, and he was by divine grace able to play the man. The longer I worked in the hospitals, the more my admiration for the men increased. Their magnificent patience, wonderful endurance, and uplifting cheerfulness was beyond praise. It was very rarely that a man was heard grousing, and if he did, his mates gave him such a time of it that he found it convenient to assume a more cheerful frame of mind, although he might be far from possessing it. The following are but two instances called from many, which go to prove their unquenchable courage. 
One stifling summer afternoon, I was visiting the New Zealand General Hospital. Lying on a cot in the veranda was a young New Zealand soldier, intently watching the efforts of a small ant to carry away the corpse of a large fly, and bursting into merry peals of laughter at the failures of the ant. As I drew near the bed, I saw that the poor fellow had lost his leg below the knee. A shrapnel shell had burst near him, killing his two mates and felling him to the earth. He did not lose consciousness, and called to his friend by name, asking him where he was hit. Receiving no answer, he concluded that he was either dead or insensible, and trying to rise to go to his comrade's assistance, he discovered, to his great surprise, that a foot in its boot was on the ground a few feet from him. Looking at himself for the first time, he knew that he had lost part of his leg, which had been blown clean off, and that this limb he saw was, or had been, his own. This dear lad's eyes filled with tears as he spoke of the death of his mates, but he was inclined to think little of his own great loss when he considered how many had got off worse than he had. But I think the most astounding example of patient endurance and cheerfulness was that evidenced by a British soldier to whom a friend of mine spoke on board a transport, which was conveying wounded from Gallipoli to Alexandria. He was a big-boned, stalwart, north countryman. My friend noticed him lying alone and asked him how he was. He, in answer, said that he had lost his sight from shell concussion, and that the doctors held out no hope for its restoration. His right leg had been blown off near the hip, and his left arm had also gone. When my friend offered his condolences, the poor man simply said in the broadest of broad accents, Well, I thank God are of a little home to go back to, a good wife and six children. I may be a bit knocked about, but my life is spared, was many of my mates have gone under, are of a lot to be thankful for. Things might have been worse. What a lesson to those of us who are disposed to grouse, if the bacon and eggs are a bit cold, if the weather is not what we wish for, if we have toothache, neuralgia, or any kindred but trivial complaint. End of chapter 10